Well, good morning, everybody. Oh, yeah. I like that section right over there. Might be hard to believe, but way back in the day, the Manus family was just a family of six. Corinne, Tori, Lucas, Emma, Gabe, and me. And then Corinne and I signed up to lead a missions trip to go down and work in an orphanage in Mirabelle, Haiti. And when we got down there, we met two little boys, Bedza and Samuel. It was amazing because we knew that we wanted to adopt them into our family, and we knew that God wanted us to adopt them into our family. International adoption, however, is a long and arduous process, and so we had a lot of time in the process of adoption to study and to research and to just really prepare ourselves. And one of the things that we found, and Corinne specifically found out about it, has kind of stuck with me since then. She said, the thing about a family is that every family has a dance. And from the time that you are born into a family, you begin to learn that dance. The rhythm and the cadence and the steps. And at first, there's going to be a lot of stepping on each other's toes and a lot of uh, challenges. But eventually, you might get to this point in your family where it's a beautiful dance and no one's stepping on anyone's toes anymore. And for some families, right around the time you kind of get the hang of that dance, you decide to adopt. And then you have to understand that that child you adopt, or in our case, those children that we adopted, they have their own dance. And you're not going to learn their dance, and they're not going to learn your dance. Together, you're going to learn a brand new dance. And I love that because it's such a great illustration of family. It's a long, arduous process, process that can lead to a beautiful dance. I bring that up because over the last couple months as a church, we've been looking at this Old Testament life story. A guy named Samuel who lived 3,100 years ago. And we keep being reminded that God placed Samuel's story in the Bible for a reason, that there's some timelessness to his story, that, that there's some inspiration that we can get from this story that happened 3,100 years ago into our lives today. We found out that when Samuel was just a young guy, his parents, Hannah and Elkanah, they brought him to a town called Shiloh. And Shiloh was the religious center of Israel at that time. And, and, and they dropped Samuel off to be mentored by, to be uh, raised by, to be in a sense parented by the head priest in Shiloh, a man by the name of Eli. So Eli plays this role in Samuel's life as like a surrogate father. But we also found out that Eli had a family of his own, and, and it doesn't take long to realize that Eli's actual family is a little bit of a nightmare. He has two sons, and the Bible says they're scoundrels, that they're a bad lot. See, Eli's two sons, I guess to summarize it, you could say they were prideful young men. They blew past vanity and and through stubbornness into the most serious form of pride, which is exclusion. When you get to this point in your life, when you exclude everybody and everything from your life except for you, you dismiss God, you dismiss people, you dismiss compassion and empathy and love. And that's where they were at, you know? They began to manipulate the message of God to, uh, to, to get control over people to serve their pleasure and their power and their prosperity. That's what it became about for them, their pleasure, their power, and their prosperity. And there's this powerful passage in 1 Samuel chapter 2 when Eli, their dad, comes to them and says, my sons, you can't do this. Like you, you, you can't be manipulating people. You can't be misrepresenting God to, for your power and your privilege and, 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 and your prosperity. And there's this conflict, and tragically, the Bible says 
that Eli's sons were so far gone that they did not change from their wicked ways. And the truth is, their story ended up tragically. And I want to tell you today, and I think this is really, really important. The one thing that will determine, more than anything else, whether your family story ends with a beautiful dance or a tragic end, the one thing that will determine, more than anything else, whether your family story ends in a beautiful dance or a tragic end, will be this. How will you handle conflict? It's a really big deal. And I want to turn our attention actually to the New Testament, to what we refer to as the New Testament book of James. Now, the book of James is actually a letter written by James, the little brother of Jesus, to first century Christians. But God inspired James to write this letter because it's a letter of instruction to 21st century Christians like you and me too. He talks about conflict. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't, do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So let me start here. I'm going to break this passage kind of down piece by piece. And it starts out by saying this. What what causes, not causes, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Every family's going to have conflict, but you don't have to fight and quarrel. Every family is going to have conflict, but you do not have to fight and quarrel. You can disagree without being disagreeable. Every family is going to have conflict. We're learning this dance, right? And, and your steps are different than my steps. Your rhythm is different than my rhythm. Your cadence is different than my cadence. We are going to come into conflict from time to time, but we do not have to fight and we do not have to quarrel. I always get an uneasy feeling when I have somebody tell me there is no conflict in my family. Well, I don't believe you. I don't believe you at all. In fact, if you tell me that there is no conflict in your family, I would suggest that you don't realize it, but you are fighting and you are quarreling. And you think there's no conflict in your family because you're fighting and you're quarreling. See, when you fight, what you do is you take an issue and you make it way bigger than it is. There's two kind of fighters. There's shouters and there's pouters. Okay, shouters are snap shows. And they don't think there's any conflict in their family. Why? Because everyone's scared of them. Oh, like, there's lots of conflict in their their hearts. There's there's lots of things that they disagree with. There's lots of of things that they would like to say, but they don't say it to you because you're a shouter. They're scared of you. That can be a father who, when he's on his way home from work, everybody scatters. That can be a mom that the kids just look and say, don't even get her started. She's going to lose it. That can be a child, actually. Child can take complete control of the family. You just give him whatever, give, give, give him, give her whatever they want. You know, they're going to lose it. Shouters often think that there's no conflict in their family because everybody's scared of them. The second version of, of shouting actually is just silent shouting. It's pouting. Pouters are prideful shouters. They say, we don't raise our voice in this family. No, you don't. You just pout. 
So every time you get mad, you'd like hold a, like you, you don't talk for two weeks. And people say to you, are you okay? And you say, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I'm fine. And there's no, there's, you don't think there's any conflict in your family because they just don't want to mess with you because they don't want the silent treatment for the next two weeks. You can disagree without being disagreeable. You don't have to fight. You also don't have to quarrel. Quarreling is taking a little thing and, 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 and just extending it and making it way wider than it has to be. There's two kind of quarrelers. There's uh, counters and there's jousters. Jousters are people who, for them, uh, conflict is like a sport. They love it, you know? Like, like they can be like dragging and have no energy in a given day, but when a disagreement comes up, now they just liven up. And they're jabbing, and they're fencing, and they're jousting, and they just, they just love it, you know? They'll argue that they're right even when they know that they're wrong, and they'll keep going and going and going and going and going and going until they wear you down. And they don't think there's any conflict in the family because the rest of the family says, I can't be bothered. I can't handle it, you know? And the second kind of quarrelers are just counters. They extend it way longer than it has to be. In other words, you say to them, hey, do you think you could like put your dirty dishes into the dishwasher? And they go, oh, you want to talk to me about dirty dishes? Well, 14 years ago at 9, 14 a.m., you know, and they unfurl the scroll. And you don't think there's conflict in your family because there's all these people walking around under this load of guilt that you've placed upon them and they don't want to go there because they don't want to be reminded of everything they've done wrong. So why do we fight and why do we quarrel? Because this is a big deal. You, you want to head towards a beautiful dance rather than a tragic end. Why are we fighting and why are we quarreling? This is what James says. Um, they come from your desires that battle within you. You want and you want, 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 but you don't get, so you fight and you quarrel. That's where it comes from. You want, and 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 you want, but you don't get, so you fight and you quarrel. Now, some of the stuff you want, by the way, I'm not trying to make fun of you or make fun of me. Some of the things that we want is very legitimate. Anyone would want them. But it's kind of really empowering to know that your fights and your quarrels, you control whether you're going to fight or whether you're going to quarrel. It's the things that you want and you want and you want and you want, but you don't get. A couple of months ago, I met with a young man. Uh, if you saw him, you, you, you know, at first glance, you would look at him and go, man, that guy has everything going for him. Big athletic dude, good looking, super popular. But he is been fighting and fighting and fighting and quarreling with his family until eventually we arranged for, for him and I to meet. And we sat down and I said to him, how are you doing? He said, awesome. I'm like, oh, okay, that's great. Then why are we meeting? You know, like, and, he, and, and I said, okay, well, let me try that again. How are you doing? And this big, cool, strong guy, I'm looking at him. He doesn't say anything. And I see his lips start to quiver and I see tears rolling down his face. He says, I, I'm, I'm adopted. And over the last few months, I've been thinking about my birth mom. And I've just been thinking about what kind of loser I must be that my birth mom doesn't even want me. 
what kind of failure I must be that my birth mother doesn't even care about me. How worthless I must be that my birth mom doesn't even value me. It's pretty heartbreaking. There was like this silence in the room and then I said to him probably exactly what you would have said to him if you would have been there. I said, I don't know a lot about your birth mom, but the stuff that you are telling me makes me think that she's a little bit dysfunctional, and I just need you to know that her dysfunction does not determine your destiny. And for some of you, that's maybe why you came to church today, because you need to hear that. <clears throat> her dysfunction does not determine your destiny. His dysfunction does not determine your destiny. I said, you have a heavenly father who loves you, He's with you and he's for you. And in so many ways, the journey of your life is gonna be walking into a realization of just how much value he has placed in you and wants to work through you to a world that really needs to see it. So why do we fight and why do we quarrel? Because we want and we want and we want and we want and we want. And then James says this, listen. You desired, but you do not have, so you kill. So the scripture took a turn for the morbid there. So you kill. Really important that I, that I let you know what James is doing here. J James is exiting any notion that you and I might have that he's writing a nice little passage here that we could refer to as the seven habits of highly effective families. Or 21 irrefutable laws of conflict or the five dysfunctions of a marriage. Actually, what James is doing here, and this is really, really important. If you've been a little bit zoned out to this part of the message, I need you to lean in because what James is doing at this portion of the passage is this. It's a spiritual call to arms. What he's saying is this is life or death. See, I can stand up here Sunday after Sunday and I can say to you, in John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus alludes to the fact that we are in a spiritual battle, that we have an enemy, the devil, who seeks to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that you might have life to the full. But I need to tell you today, James is saying that it's personal. That there is a battle raging in this world. It's a spiritual battle. It's a battle of light versus darkness, hope versus despair, life versus death. And while I can tell you, listen, God has a plan for your family. He has a plan for your marriage. He has a plan for your friendships that, 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 that it would become a beautiful dance. You have an enemy named the devil who also has a plan for your family, a plan for your marriage, and a plan for your friendships. And he would like to see it all come down to a tragic end. Like the stakes, according to James here, are life and death. This battle that we say is raging in our world, let me get more specific for a second. The battle is raging over you. There's a battle for you. There's a battle for your marriage. There's a battle for your family. There's a battle for your friendships. There's a battle for your life. And if I had to identify the, 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 the spirit that is afflicting our world and our culture and is coming after you, he, he, I would say the spirit of the age that is coming after you and coming after me and coming after our marriages and coming after our families, this is what I say. It, 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 it's a spirit of fear. It's a spirit of fear. 
Paul alludes to it actually in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, in which he says, God did not give you a spirit of fear. Can I ask you a quick question? Then where did all the fear come from? If God didn't give you a spirit of fear, who did? There's a battle raging in this world, but there's a battle raging over you. And, and it's a battle of light versus darkness and hope versus despair. There's a spirit of fear in our culture. I say there's three possible responses to fear in human beings. It's fight or flight or numb. You see that when you look around our culture a little bit? You see any fighting? I got one word for you, politics. Never been so fear-based as it is today. Never been so much more fighting as there is today. Social media? How about flight? I believe, there, I believe there's a concept in our culture today where people are trying to escape the sense of taking responsibility for their lives and growing up, and so we call it extended adolescence where people just run and run and run and run and run and try not to take responsibility. It's a spirit of fear. You see any numbing behaviors in our culture today? I don't know, like, I'm, I'm just not sure. I'm not, I'm not sure what else you would call someone who spends maybe 14 hours a day playing video games or seven hours a day surfing porn or, um, or, 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 or the fact that um, drug addiction has never been as high as it is today. It's a spirit of fear in our culture. There's a fear of missing out that drives our social media. There's a, there's a fear of missing out that drives uh, an industry that, that has kind of emerged just over the last decade or so in our world. It's called the self-care industry. Ever heard of self-care? The self-care industry in our world today, in our culture today, is a multi-billion dollar industry. And here's what's crazy. It's not working. Why is that? Oh, because there's a spirit of fear. Self-care is a multi-billion dollar industry, and yet our levels of contentedness in our culture have never, ever been lower. What's going on? It's a spirit of fear. There's a, there's a fear of not getting my fair share. It drives our economy. You deserve it. You need it. You have to have it. And somewhere inside we go, nah, I don't know. But, 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 but yet we're, we're driven into this consumerist, consumeristic mentality that says, I will be defined, I will be satisfied by what I get, not what I give. It's a spirit of fear. There's a spirit of fear of people. This consistent pressure that we feel to live up to the expectations of others, to keep up with our neighbors. The spirit of fear in our culture, another word for fear is anxiety. It's everywhere. Social anxiety. We can laugh as much as we want and say millennials. Young men can't even pick up the phone and, 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 and ask a young woman out. Yeah, that's tragic. It's the spirit of fear. And what it leads to is it leads to this. Wanting and wanting and wanting and wanting, fear of missing out. Wanting and wa fear of not getting my fair share. Fear of not measuring up. Wanting and wanting and wanting and wanting. 
And according to James, it's a spiritual battle and the stakes are life and death. That God has a plan for a beautiful dance in your family and in your marriage and your friendships and so does Satan and he would like to see a tragic end. Have you ever heard of the concept of performance-based acceptance? Per- performance-based acceptance is when people, it's kind, of a, it's kind of an extension of this whole wanting and wanting and wanting and wanting and wanting and wanting and wanting, and we extend it to other people. So now people become commodities. You understand? So, so, so now you are accepted based on your performance. If you act a certain way, if you look a certain way, if you achieve to a certain level, you will then be accepted. And it's a soul killer. It's a soul killer. A couple months ago, I read about a FBI investigation called Operation Varsity Blues. It's an investigation into coaches of low-profile sports at the most elite universities in the United States. Universities like Yale and Stanford. And there was these coaches of like the water polo team and the rowing team and the tennis team, and they were accepting bribes from parents of university students, tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of bribes. And in exchange for these bribes, what they would do is they would write a letter saying, this person's child, this this young man or this young woman is on my water polo team, even though they weren't. And the reason why is because if you play a sport at these schools, the admission requirements, the academic admission requirements drop just a little bit so they could get their kids into the best of the best schools. I got a question for you. For who? It's amazing because as I did this study, I saw that these young men and these young women were actually excellent students. They, they could have got into very, very good schools on their own merits, but it wasn't good enough for their parents. Their parents needed them to be in the best schools. Why? For who? Because I want, and I want, and I want, and I want, and I want. I got a fear of missing out. I got a fear of not measuring up. I got a fear of not getting my fair share. And my kid needs to go to the best school. For who? For you. Or parents who get obsessed with their kids being good at sports. Like really good. You know, people say, well, you coached your kids growing up. That, that, that must have been you. Never. I just like to spend time with my kids, help them get as good as they wanted to get. That's it. But for some parents, it becomes way more than that. They want, and 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 they want, they want, they want, they want, they want their daughter to become the next Serena Williams. They want their son to become the next Connor McDavid. I just picked that one out of the blue, you know? (laughs) And here's the question. So what? And? A few months ago, I read an autobiography by Andre Agassi from the time he could walk. His dad had him out on the tennis court, hitting balls, grinding all day long because his dad had a dream for Andre Agassi that one day Andre Agassi, this little boy, would grow up to be the number one tennis player in the entire world. And guess what happened? His dad grinded him and grinded him and worked him and worked him and worked him and he grew up to be the number one tennis player in the world. And at the height of Andre Agassi's fame and fortune and success, making tens of millions of dollars, this is what he said. I hate tennis. <laughs> I hate it with a dark, secret passion, and I always have. I hate tennis. hate it with all my heart, and still I keep playing, keep hitting all morning and all afternoon because I have no choice. No matter how much I want to stop, I don't. 
I keep begging myself to stop and still I keep playing. And this gap, this contradiction between what I want to do and what I actually do feels like the core of my life. Performance-based acceptance, please hear me, is a soul killer. Um, that, that, that kid, they are a soul. They have a mind. Okay, but what if, what if I treat them as if they are their mind? They are their GPA. They are their ability to get into the best school. That's a soul killer. That young man, that young woman, they are a soul. They have a body. But what if I treat them that they are defined by exclusively, that they, they actually are what they can achieve on the ice or on the field or on the court? Well, that's a soul killer. It's like the man who wants his wife to have sex with him, like the sex that he watches on the internet all day. I want to stop there for a second. I'm not getting, I, I hope I'm not being theoretical. I'm trying to be personal today. What, what I'm suggesting is that there is a spiritual battle raging in our world, but specifically there's a spiritual battle raging over you for your life, for your effectiveness, for your family, for your marriage. Heard the other day, 1% of women who get involved in the porn industry make it out alive. 1%. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever spent some time reading the, reading the Bible in the Old Testament? And they talk about stories in the Old Testament how <clears throat> there's these uh, demonic religions where, where people actually get sacrificed for the, for the pleasure and the prosperity of the culture. We have no problem saying that's demonic, right? So, so please let me be very clear. There is a spiritual battle raging over you for your life, for your effectiveness, for your family and your marriage. And when you surf porn, you are inviting demonic activity into your life. You are inviting de demonic oppression into your family. Please let me be clear. So now this guy, he wants his wife to have sex with him like he watches on the internet, but, but she has a body, but she is a soul. And, and what does she want? She wants to be cherished. She wants to be valued. She wants to be loved unconditionally, but he's wanting and 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 she dies inside. Or a woman who looks at her husband and says, you better make lots of money. You better be a huge success, because I got people that I need to impress. And she's wanting, and she's wanting, and she's wanting, but he goes way deeper than his ability to produce wealth, right? He's a soul. What does a soul want? Oh, man. Encouragement, value, unconditional love, but she's wanting, and wanting, and wanting, and wanting, and he's dying inside. 
Now, I remember after the first service, I had a few people come to me and say, Mike, that was such a great message. I'm so scared. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's bad because we're talking about a spirit of fear and I just made you fearful. Okay, so, so now I, I kind of want to talk about the good news. Because James transitions here. He says, this is a battle uh, of life and death. And it's not just a battle in our world. It's a battle over you. But, but he says this, you do not have because you don't ask God. We need to pray. We need to pray for freedom. We need to pray for deliverance. We, 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 we need to pray. Because 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 says, God did not give you a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. That's what God wants to give you. That's what his Holy Spirit, that's why God created you, to live a life of power and love and a sound mind. Power and love and a sound mind. Here's what happens to you. When you, when you start to pray, all of a sudden God's gonna begin to change you from the inside out. And when you look at people, you're not gonna see them as commodities anymore. He's gonna open your eyes and you're gonna start to see the people around you the way God sees the people around you. You're gonna to start to love people. So instead of wanting and wanting and wanting and wanting, you're gonna to start to love, love, love. Instead of being all about getting, you're gonna be about giving. Instead of all, being all about having, you're gonna be about helping. He's gonna change you. But we gotta pray. We gotta understand that there is a battle and we're headed for a beautiful dance or a tragic end. The stakes are real high. You say, well, Mike, you don't really know my situation. My situation is incredibly unfair. I believe you. Um, I've known that for a long time. I think you have too. Life, life is unfair, right? Life is unfair, right? So, so now, you and me, we got a big choice to make right in the middle, smack dab in the middle of this unfair world. Are we going to trust a heavenly father who loves us completely even in the middle of this unfair world? Are we going to trust a heavenly father? Are we going to pray to a heavenly father who loves us, who's at work even in an unfair world? Who wants to work in us and through us even in the middle of this unfair world? Because here's what's going to happen. He's going to open your eyes. He's going to open your heart. And all of a sudden you're going to live this life that's not wanting and wanting and wanting and wanting. You're going to love. I feel like I should say one thing before I move into the beginning part of my three-part conclusion. Okay, so. Um, there's some people here today, you're, you're in a situation where you are in danger or your children are in danger. I wanna tell you what your next step is. You need to love that dangerous person and here's how you love them, get away. Get distance. No, I'm serious. And if you need help, text, text us, 604-670-3040. You need to love them from afar. You need to pray for them from afar. You do not stay in a place of danger. <clears throat> James wraps it up this way. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Here's what he's saying is like for some people, we see God as like a cosmic pinata. You know what I mean? Like I want and 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 God just, you just need to serve my want and my want and my want. God's not interested in that kind of relationship with you. Way back in the 1600s, 
the Westminster Catechism was written. And it starts this way. It says, what is the chief end of men? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You get it? What's the chief end of your family? The chief end of your family is not to satisfy all the things that you want and 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 you want. The chief end of your spouse is not to satisfy all the things that you want and you want and you want and you want and you want. The chief end of your children is not to satisfy everything that you want and you want and you want and you want. The chief end of your friendships is not to satisfy in a commodity type fashion all the things that you want. What is the chief end of your family and your spouse and your children and your friends? An instrument by which, listen, by which you can glorify God. How? Just love them like he loves them. Just see them like he sees them. Just hear them like he hears them. Not as a commodity, but as an infinitely valuable human being. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. What a concept. What a concept. See, we're, we're in a battle. Because living in this world where there's this spirit of fear convincing people that if I want and I want and I want and I chase and I chase and I want and I want, somehow I'm finally going to be satisfied and it never works. And, and God says, I got a new plan. I got a different plan. Love. And when we open up our clenched fists and we love the people around us, and we start to see them like he sees them, hear them like he hears them, have a heart for them like he has a heart for them, we enjoy life. That's it. God didn't give you a spirit of fear. You, were, you weren't born to live with a spirit of fear. I claim today for you power and love and a sound mind. That's you. That's you. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you so much for every man and every woman, every boy and every girl in this place today, every family represented. Thank you, Jesus, that you stepped into human history. You intervened in human history, that you came and you died and you rose again, not to give us a spirit of fear, but a power and love and a sound mind. And so I pray right now against the spirit of fear in every single person here today, in every single family here today, in every single marriage here today, in every single friendship here today. I, I, I pray against, I pray freedom from fear. I pray for your Holy Spirit to set us free, to live a life of power and love and a sound mind. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, Give us a heart to care like you care. That we might glorify you in our marriages. That we might glorify you in our families. That we might glorify you in our parenting. That we might glorify you in our friendships. And enjoy. Enjoy you. Today. Tomorrow. And forever. I claim for every single person here. For every single marriage here. Power. Through your Holy Spirit. Love. Through your Holy Spirit. And a sound mind. Peace. Thank you. Well, we don't have to be fearful because you're with us and you're for us. And we pray for your Holy Spirit to set us completely and totally free in your name.
Amen. Amen. I ask the uh, band to close with a song that I think can be a prayer. One of the things I notice, by the way, when, when I'm not speaking, sometimes I hang around in different parts of the parts of the gym. And when we do a closing song, often I notice that uh, people try to jet and, you know, get, get out of the parking lot early. So I'm going to ask you to make a big sacrifice today. I'm going to ask you to stick around right to the end. I want this song to be a prayer. And maybe you're looking, you're saying, well, you know what? I don't really think I need prayer. Man, we do. So can you pray for us, for the rest of us? <laughs> and the song talks about the fact that we want hope to rise in us. We want hope to rise in us so that hope can rise through us to our, in our marriage, in our families, in our parenting in this city. So why don't you stand and use this song as a prayer. I claim power. I claim love and a sound mind for you and for me. Power and love and a sound mind. That's who you are. That's who you were born to be. Power and love and a sound mind. That's God's plan. Power, love, sound mind. I love you guys a lot. Hey, so next week we're launching our fourth service. Two main reasons we're doing that, by the way. Number one, it's to increase our capacity on the peakest of our peak Sundays. And secondly, it's to open up seats for people who maybe... Uh, Sunday morning doesn't really work, but Sunday 12.30 might just work. So next week we're going to launch that. Uh, Corinne and I are going to speak together. One of the things we often say is we might not be experts, but we have experience when it comes to, uh, to family. And we're going to talk again next week a little bit more about how we can move towards a beautiful dance as opposed to a tragic end. Power, love, and a sound mind. I love you guys. Have a great week. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you at any of our three Sunday services held at Sardis Secondary School on Stevenson Road in Chilliwack, British Columbia. For more information, please visit southsidelife.com.